Koinonia, Christian fellowship, communion with God and with fellow Christians. Koinonia, an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. This is Koinonia. This is Community. And now, your host, Tom Brown. This is one of those days. Baseball season opened yesterday for the Arizona Diamondbacks, and I am actually hosting uh, pastors at the Diamondbacks tonight. Now, And the way this works, the Diamondbacks uh, allow me to uh, take pastors to the game, and we're in a suite. And sometimes, you know, it's just a normal suite that's out past, you know, the the right field or there kind of way up. But they um, they called me this morning and said, hey, by the way, we had a cancellation. Would you like to host the pastors uh, right behind home plate? And I waited all of, uh, I don't know, maybe a tenth or two-tenths of a second and said, yeah. And then they graciously asked, would you please not wear or would any of your pastors not wear Colorado Rockies gear because you will be on camera pretty much the whole game. And I said, okay. So, uh, you know, not one single pastor has pushed back on that. Everybody said, yeah, we're in. We're, we'll do that. So <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? So, you know, just God's blessing. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where uh, it's an opportunity to talk about faith and family night which is coming up in August with Matthew West, that uh, that's the, the the reason that I'm able to offer uh, some pastors tickets. And uh, all of a sudden it, it you know, what I, and I think of that McGee and me, the, the cartoon from, a Christian cartoon from, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, that uh, there was a specific one talking about not asking to be at the head of the table. You know, come in with humility, uh, and graciousness, and be asked to the head. That's kind of how I feel tonight, or for tonight's game, is that, you know, we were just, uh, I, I, I'm a humble servant, bringing pastors for a fun night at the ballpark, and the next thing you know, we've been asked to the head table, uh, literally right behind home plate. So I'll, if you want to follow along on social media tonight, just to see how much fun I'm having <laughs> with pastors, uh, I know that it's a highlight real thing, and sometimes it can be depressing. I didn't I'm not paying for this. It's all a gift from the Diamondbacks, but uh, I can't wait to see, particularly, uh, I know some young guys are going to be there with their dads. I can't wait to see their faces, and I'm going to take pictures, and uh, we're going to be on Facebook. So Tom Brown AZ on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or also at Faith Talk 1360 on the same, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you, you know, just live vicariously through me. I guess I don't know what how I don't know how else to say it, but I'm pretty excited. I know some pastors that are pretty excited, and I know some young guys that are really, really excited. This Friday night, Aspire is coming to Pure Heart Christian Fellowship. One night, three hours, just for women. An evening full of laughter, learning, stories, and music. Author Shante Feldhahn and speaker and teacher Shannon Hoffpower from, well, she's she's from Arizona here. Comedy from Carrie Pomerale, she's hilarious. And incredible worship music with Mia Kane. Tickets are still available. Go to AspireWomensConference.com. That's AspireWomensConference.com. Don't forget Hope Fest. 
That's uh, in uh, just under two weeks, April 16th. Uh, more details to come on that. Also, I'm doing uh, the Walk for Life for the CPC of Greater Phoenix, and I'd love for you to join me and my team. You can go to uh, uh, Walk for Life or, or search on uh, CPC Greater Phoenix and uh, click on the Walk for Life. I'll give you the details to join my team or sponsor my team in uh, in, in in the coming days. But uh, there's two locations, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Yes, I know. I'm doing it at the same time I'm doing Hope Fest. But I'll, I'll explain how all that's going to work. But we've got a great show with Stan Reynolds lined up for you today. Yeah, we're going to talk some fun stuff. Continue listening here. This is Faith Talk 1360, KPXQ. As I was sitting down here, I said, uh, I can't believe it. it's been a month. And then uh, realized it's actually been two months because Stan and I didn't get together last month. Right. So that's kind of scary, Stan. Huh? Uh, but with uh, your profession, yeah, you're a little busy right now. It's kind of a time warp. So <laughs> that's okay. And uh, God has got me doing so many awesome things right now with the radio station and pastors that uh, I, I'm just, you know, running from one thing to the next. But I'm always, uh, for years, um, been delighted to hear you've brought insight on science, on history, on archaeology, uh, from a Christian perspective that I've enjoyed. I haven't actually gotten to take any of your classes, but one day that's going to work out too, and I'm going to get to be in one of your classes. But Stan, for those that are just joining us, give us a little uh, uh, the background of your hobby, because this is... This is your, 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 your personal passion stuff here, right? Well, right. My undergraduate degree out at ASU was in uh, chemistry, and somewhere along the line I decided I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life in a chem lab <laughs> and went a little bit different route but always had an intense interest in the sciences and uh, their relationship to faith, to mm-hmm. biblical faith. And as a result of that, I've kind of kept up on what's been going on around and uh, want to talk today about pretty exciting scientific breakthrough confirmation that occurred uh, about a month ago mm-hmm. and uh, give a, the audience a little bit of an understanding of this complicated subject as it's not really that hard if it's explained well and what it means for people of biblical faith. And I remember seeing, uh, what was it, gravitational waves? Is that was, do I have that term That's right? correct. The first observation in the real mode of the laboratory of something predicted by Einstein with the theory of relativity, and that is that there are undulating waves of gravity moving across the universe. And what does that mean? Yeah, why? <laughs> what does that mean? We're going to spend this whole hour talking about this? Oh, my gosh. Crying out loud. Please. Hit the snooze button. All right. So let me tell you just a little bit about it. Uh, let me give some background. First of all, in the Old Testament, in the prophet Daniel... Daniel has some amazing, amazing stories in the first six chapters, and then it switches the last six chapters of Daniel are various prophecies and future events that that God gave him. Some of them, the description of the decay and breakdown of the Greek Empire into four segments, the rise of the Roman Empire, 
are so specific that for a number of years, scholars of the uh, who want to do this have uh, tried to make a case that Daniel really wasn't written when we think it was written. It must have been written later by somebody who actually knew that the oh, Greek wow. Empire was going to break up and that they coded all that in there. And that's fine. We can argue back and forth about all that. But then Daniel went on and made prophecies about Jesus Christ coming at a particular time which was fulfilled in A.D. 32, and we definitely know the book of Daniel was in print by then. But further than that, in the chapter 12, the last chapter of Daniel, the messenger from God says to Daniel, now many of these prophecies, Daniel, seal them up until the end of days, when at that time knowledge shall be greatly, geometrically, exponentially, greatly increased on the earth, and men shall go to and fro throughout all the earth. And that's kind of how the chapter ends. If you were to draw a a line of the number or the amount of knowledge that we were understanding and knowing in the world through the history of mankind, it would be a pretty straight line just barely increasing Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years to get from the knowledge of fire to the knowledge of a furnace that can make metal. And then all of a sudden, beginning with the Renaissance about 300 or so years ago, it begins to start going up. But beginning about 100 years ago, the line turns up almost straight vertical. And in the last 100 years, knowledge has been increased that anyone who takes the time to draw a chart like this can see it so clearly in all the history of mankind. This is the one period when knowledge is being amazingly increased. And one of the main reasons that knowledge is being so increased right now is because we were willing in general as a group of people to embrace the findings of Einstein in 1915. His understanding that was so different of how light works, whether it's a wave or a particle, how gravity works, so different than the normal way of thinking things, that had we not been willing to embrace what he was saying, we would never have teased apart and really understand how lasers work. We would not have created the semiconductor chip. Uh, Pretty much the iPhones that are in your pockets would be a lot longer in coming than they ever got here. Uh, Television and radio waves. The understanding of pretty much all the technology we're working with today comes directly from the fact that we abandoned the approximation of the way light and energy works that came to us from Newton and his laws of thermodynamics and others. And we embraced the understanding, a more rightful understanding of the nature of the universe around us that comes from Einstein and the theory of relativity. In the beginning, what he says so upset the scientists of his day that they... (laughs) would not accept it. Right. In fact, I just gave it away when I said in the beginning. Yeah, he, he was fighting. He because fight. Einstein's equations had a factor in them for T, for time. And as he logically followed those equations backward in time, he realized the universe was growing smaller as he went backward in time and getting hotter. And far enough back, it was extremely small and extremely hot. And far enough back, near T equals zero, it was nearly infinitely small and infinitely hot. Hmm. And just before T equals zero, it was not. (laughs) The implication of that was there was a beginning to the universe. And the first three words of the Bible in the beginning changed with Einstein from a statement of religious belief to a statement of verified scientific fact. There was a beginning of the universe, and a, a great physicist of the time in England, Sir Arthur Eddington, I believe, said, uh, frankly, the notion of a beginning to the present order of things is repugnant to me. I, I should like to find a genuine loophole, he says. <laughs> he was British. And the scientists of the day really uh, derided it, and they said, what? what are you saying, Einstein? Are you saying that, like, there was this 
big flash of energy, like in some sort of big bang, the universe just started up. And the phrase Big Bang was actually invented as a derision, an insult to Einstein. Uh, today, there are still some groups of Christians that stumble over that whole term and get all frustrated by it. And that's, that's a different issue for a different day. But, but the idea was they just didn't believe it. And they've spent the better part of 100 years trying to either deny or confirm right. his findings. Einstein suggested two great ways that his theories could be verified. And uh, the second of the two has been formulated or found here with the discovery of gravity waves. So let me tell you about that one. Then we'll wow. go back and lay some foundation for it. And then we'll show what in the world it means. I for just thought it was a cool headline, Stan. I didn't realize this was – this is significant. Well, it is because – Basically, we talk about gravity Mm -hmm. and we say, well, you know, if a massively large object is nearby, the gravitational force will like pull you towards it. Well, think about that for a second. What what is this force? Is it like little ray beams that are coming out? and, and, And what is gravity? How does it work? And we all thought of it as some sort of force beam or feet. But Einstein said, well, what's actually happening is that space is not empty. Oh, yes, it's empty of air. It's a vacuum. But space itself is not nothing. It's something. There's a fabric to the universe that we now call space-time because Einstein said that the three dimensions of space and the one dimension of time are not separate things. They're all part of one fabric that weaves this universe together. And the universe is best thought of space could be thought of if we wanted to reduce it from a three-dimensional reality down to a two-dimensional thing we can visualize in our mind think of space as if it were a giant trampoline bed and then you rolled a bowling ball onto the trampoline and it settled down in the center of the trampoline and of course it would depress the trampoline bed there and if you were a small kid and you were trying to walk around the edge circle of the trampoline you would keep falling to your left toward the middle because Mm -hmm. Because the massiveness of the bowling ball had deformed the space that you're walking on. Okay. And so Einstein said what gravity is, gravity is simply a ripple, a deforming of the fabric of space-time around the big massive object. So the reason you want to fall toward the planet when you're sailing by on a spaceship is that Space is literally curving right there, and you're on a straight line, but the straight line you're on is being curved. It's being deformed by gravity. Now, so this notion that gravity is a deformation, a deforming of space-time began to explain why and how gravity would work. Well, the outcome of that would be if there were two supermassive bodies on the trampoline, and if they were somehow like in motion around each other, they would be bouncing the trampoline bed up and down, and it would create little ripples Mm. of effect that would go out even toward the edge. Uh, Or if you've ever had two people on a trampoline and you managed to figure out how to add your bounce to somebody else and send them flying, uh, that's what you've done. You've sent a ripple of your gravitational effect through the trampoline bed to that other person and flip them off the bed, and then your parents are mad. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Einstein postulated the existence of gravity waves, but the calculations show they would be very small by the time they got to us from a great distant gravitational source. Sure. The sources of some of the greatest gravity in the universe are these things known as black holes, collapsed stars that have gotten so tightly packed with mass that uh, they create massive gravitational forces. And 
there are a couple places in the universe where two collapsed stars have formed black holes that are connected to each other, that are whipping around, around each other, slowly spiraling into each other. And, yes. And they're, they're whipping around, and that whipping of these massive objects is creating gravitational waves that are fanning out across the universe. By the time they get to us here, they're extremely small. Right. So the problem has been to measure what Einstein said would exist from his theory. If we could actually measure them in reality it would be another proof that Einstein's theory is correct, that indeed the universe, all that he said about light and gravity and about the universe having a beginning, was true. Mm. So there's a uh, place called LIGO, and that's not like LEGO at the LEGO factory. <laughs> LIGO is the it's a, uh, observatory. It's the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, L-I-G-O, LIGO. And the LIGO folks are founded or funded by the National Sciences Foundation, and they have two laboratories way up in Richmond, Washington, and another one way down in Livingston, Louisiana. These are about 2,000 miles apart from each other, and they take measurements. Gravity waves move at the speed of light. Well, to travel 186,000 miles a second, the speed of light, and to travel the 2,000 miles between these two laboratories at the speed of light takes 10 milliseconds to get from Louisiana to, living, to uh, Washington. So we can measure the difference between measuring the gravity waves at one place versus another and see the slight differences in the wave frequencies created by a 10 millisecond delay. Wow. And we can observationally observe in reality gravity waves do in fact exist, which is what they did last month. I cannot wait for somebody to bring this topic up and I am going to be able to describe it. So it can be understood. Wonderful job, Stan. We're going to continue the conversation. I find this fascinating and looking forward to hearing more because this is just the first segment. So we've got a lot more. You're listening to Koinonia. Stan Reynolds is my guest. Faith Talk 1360, KPXQ. Okay, so I mentioned that there was a test, right? No, I'm kidding. Not a test, but I am excited because I feel like I understand it better. I mean, it's just amazing what a good teacher uh, can do to enlighten. Stan Reynolds is my guest, and uh, this first Tuesday of the month is going to kind of be his regular landing spot uh, for us, and he will bring uh, current news of science and archaeology and whatever is in the in the headlines, if you will, and bring us a biblical worldview for it. And I think that's the ultimate uh, in understanding. It's not just knowing an item, but it's knowing how that item fits within God's creation for us. Very good. Very good. So Einstein said that there were two possible tests that could be used to confirm his theories. And, of course, the second test, here almost 100 years later, we've finally devised instruments sensitive enough to, to monitor, to actually measure those gravity waves. And, and that will open something all brand new to us rolling forward. And we now have a new way to measure information coming to us from out in the universe. We used to only be able to see the visible light with our mm-hmm. eyes, but then we created telescopes that could see light that was too 
faint. Then we inv- invented infrared that could see light coming to us in a different wavelength, and then ultraviolet. So now we measure the ultraviolet light of stars to get more information about how hot they are, how big they are, even though they're so far away from us. And or now, at least were, anyway. <laughs> right. Now we'll be able to develop instruments that will measure the gravity waves coming to us from various galaxies and others, and that will give us more information about how big they are, how many stars they have, how massive they are. I mean, it, it's a mind-boggling idea that we here on this one little speck of a planet in the massive universe are actually able to measure the length and scope of all the time of creation and all the extent of creation. Just in this one location, that's an entirely different show about how uniquely positioned Earth is in the universe to be able to see things from this position. But getting back to Einstein, uh, it took 100 years for his second test to be proven. But it was his first test that came pretty early that allowed scientists to believe him enough to make the breakthroughs that led to transistors and radios and lasers and televisions and and all the great technology we're enjoying today and the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, knowledge shall be greatly increased. And this was when, uh, to set the stage for it, Einstein was a relatively young guy working in a patent office in Switzerland, and he was observing an experiment being done around the world at the turn of the century, around 1900. They were looking to verify the ether of space. The prevailing theory of light was that it was a wave, and like any kind of a wave, a sound wave needs air to propagate through. An ocean wave needs water to propagate through. A light wave must surely need something in space to propagate through. And so uh, they were testing for the ether space, and they did this thing called the Mickelson-Morley experience, and they were an utter and dismal failure Hmm. to find the ether of space. And sitting over in Switzerland in the patents office, Einstein had this mind-blowing thought. Maybe the reason they didn't find the ether ether, (laughs) is because there is no ether. Duh. And so he began to reformulate the equations based upon the idea that light can't be a wave. It can't be a wave solely because it doesn't have an ether to, uh, mm-hmm. in space to propagate through. As he did this, the equations began to break open that had been puzzling everyone else when he made that intuitive leap. So he began to realize that light was fundamentally different. It had elements of like a particle, set of like a stream of particles coming that we would call photons eventually. But it had elements like a wave, and it was a hybrid sort of a strange thing. And so he, he, when he assumed light worked like that, the equations began to break open and solve themselves. So his critics said, but your equations suggest that the universe began a limited, finite time ago out of essentially nothing. That sounds much too religious for us because from from Plato and Aristotle for 2,000 years until 1900, every learned person in the world believed the universe was infinite in existence and time and scope. And Einstein was saying, no, it's not. And and trying to even comprehend what nothing means because it's not – Nothing as you and I normally, it's nothing, nothing. Right. It, it, it's what came before the creation of the universe isn't just like empty space. There was no space. Right. But it, <laughs> in, in nothing, a nearly infinite amount of energy was perfectly formulated to cause three dimensions of space and one dimension of time to begin to f- expand outward and weave the fabric of space time beginning instantaneously. It's what we call a singularity, a one-time event that no one can ever replicate in a lab. 
We can look back at it, trace back close to it. We can hypothesize about it, but we can never actually recreate it again in the lab. And the problem with a singularity is that no coherent information flows from the other side of the singularity to us, meaning the temperatures and the pressures at the beginning of the universe were so great that if there was any information in the initial creative event that could somehow give us an idea of what lies beyond, that information was scrambled and ruined in the singularity, meaning... No beings confined to the three-dimensional space manifold of this universe can know anything specifically about what came before. Whether it's a, a faith belief that a personal creator brought it into being or whether it's a secular belief that some universe-creating multiverse machine out there is spawning out universes, either way – each group has to take that by faith because there's no ability to measure that. I, that was what I was going to say. It's like, well, does it take greater faith to believe in a creator or does it take greater faith to believe that there was no creator? For me, uh, it takes more faith to believe that there was no creator because it, it just it, it baffles. With, with God as creator, as he says he was, then it, it, you know, it actually makes logical sense too, not just theoretical sense. Well, if it's true that no beings living within, confined within this universe, can look through to see what was beyond, then each one is free to speculate and create thoughts and beliefs about anything they want to. You could say it's unicorns that are prancing out there and their hoofbeats are somehow dislodging and creating universes. Or you could say a multiverse, or you could say a personal being like God. From this side of the universe, we can't see through. So that only leaves one other possibility then. If something after the singularity creates the universe, after the universe is created, if something comes through from that other side, mm. can't be initiated from our side, right. but could be initiated from the other side. We Christians say the incarnation of Jesus Christ is exactly that. Right. When nonbelievers say, why would God do this? Why would he create this massive universe and then sit back there silent and leave us to fumble around trying to figure it out? Well... It's impossible for anyone to find it by any means, no matter what religion you choose, looking up from here, from this universe through to the what was beyond. But it's not impossible for the creator to come to us. Mm -hmm. And that's scientifically possible. And we Christians can uh, maintain that that's exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. One of the things that uh, there's been poetry and other things, but, you know, the center point in time, you know, Jesus was the is the center point of uh, all we know about all we know in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has been uh, powerfully, powerfully ingrained in me. One of the, I, I'm a lover of science. I'm not a scientist or even a researcher of any type, but I delight in seeing God in the smallest and in the largest. And it is true that the more we know, <laughs> the more evidence we have. It's been amazing. You know, this 100 years you've talked about yes. haven't disproved uh, the existence, it proves the existence of a creator. Well, when Einstein speculated or said from his equations that light has a particle-like nature, they said, well, show us some way to verify your theory. And he said, well, if I'm right, light being a particle could be attracted by gravity. And so light beams passing by our sun from a distant star way back behind the sun traveling toward us and the light beam that's passing on one side of our sun and, and the other light beam that's coming out from that far distant star that's passing by the other side of our sun, our sun's gravity would be sufficient to bend those light beams so that you could 
bend a light beam. It'd be like shining a flashlight at the opposite side of the wall and having it fall on the floor instead. If there was a massive enough gravitational object nearby, the light would bend. Mm-hmm. And they, so he said, there you go. Just, just measure, just take a picture uh, at the sun of the star back behind it. And on your photographic plate, there'll be two dots points, the light passing one side of the sun, the light passing the other side, bent in uh, on your photographic plate. And they said, well, that's all well and good. But the problem is when we point a camera toward the sun, the light that the sun itself is generating is so bright, we would never be able to differentiate light passing by the sun from a distant star. And Einstein said, well, yeah, there actually would be a time you could do that during a total eclipse of the sun. Mm -hmm. Einstein said it's just uh, somewhat of a coincidence that our sun is 400 times larger than our moon, but it also happens to be 400 times farther away. So in the sky, the sun and the moon look exactly the same size so that when our moon passes in front of the sun just perfectly, it obliterates all that sunlight and leaves the corona, the outer edge of the sun's light, for a few moments in time. This was in 1918 when he suggested this. Scientists said, hey, there's a total eclipse of the sun that's going to happen in 1919 in South Africa. So let's test it. Let's send some crews down there and let's do this. And in 1919 in South Africa, they pointed their photographic plates up there, and the one dot that was supposed to be the star distant back behind the sun was two dots on the photographic plate. And the headlines around the world showed it and said, Einstein right. Hmm. And the implications, of course, (laughs) universe has a beginning. Yeah. Well, they didn't uh, want to hear that. Einstein's uh, theories then being embraced led to all these technological breakthroughs that we've encountered. Scientists have continued to test and refine his theory. Uh, Einstein's suggestion that the universe began in a massive infusion, a controlled infusion of energy, would suggest that that initial infinite amount of energy heat, as it expanded and spread out across and wove the universe, would still today be measurable, a small, tiny amount of it in the universe. Somewhat like if you heated up the oven in your kitchen to 400 degrees, then turned the oven off and opened the door of the oven. And if you position thermometers across the room in your kitchen, of course the thermometers nearest to the oven would begin to heat up soonest. And the thermometer at the farthest end end of the kitchen would heat up the least and would take the longest to heat up and there would be a slight little rise in the kitchen because of that oven. Well, the universe itself, there would still today, even expanding as far as it would be, would be a slight amount of energy. Einstein calculated it would be 2.73 degrees Kelvin and they've set up satellites and done special events and the COBE orbital space satellite verified that indeed in every direction we look in the universe, after we account for all other energy creating sources, there's a residual leftover microwave background energy of 2.73 degrees. Verifying his equations again are correct. Fascinating. Stan Reynolds, our guest. We have one more segment to go. Continue to listen to Koinonia here on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. All right, this has just been a warm-up. Stan has kind of briefed me here uh, in outline form what we're going to talk about now. And if this has been uh, mind-blowing and exciting, 
this segment is just going to be more of that and an exponential growth of that. Stan Reynolds, my guest this hour, and uh, I- I'm always fascinated by learning more. In fact, one of my prayers, Stan, daily is, you know, God, thank you for allowing me to know you and help me to know you more. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the beautiful things about, uh, you know, the the smaller we can look, we right. see even more proof that there was a creator. The larger we look, which we're kind of right. doing today, more proof. Well, we follow a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. At the very end of it, it's still a step of faith, but it's it's a reasonable faith. And science takes us a lot farther down that road of faith than we ever might have thought. We're talking about Einstein and, and what this means now that his first test, that light can be bent by massive gravitational objects, and his second test, that gravity uh, creates gravitational waves, have been verified. It pretty much uh, nails the coffin closed in terms of really indie dispute about the validity of relativity as accurately describing the universe that we live in. Well, this has enormous implications for people of faith. For instance, uh, some of the outcomes of relativity, besides the explosion in technology and knowledge that Daniel predicted and the ability for us to get the gospel out through technology and means to see more people in the last 100 years with the gospel through technology than in the previous thousands of years of human history – Besides all of that, and that's great, but it does help us understand a few things that that we've had to take by faith. Uh, Let's take one for example. The equations of relativity and the works with quantum physics suggest that the creation of the universe involved at least 10 dimensions of physical reality. And of those 10 dimensions of physical reality, four of them, length, width, height, three dimensions of space, and one dimension of time, have been expanding outward ever since. But six of those 10 dimensions have remained bound up at the sub-quantum level and still exist. Hmm. And that they were necessary in the initial weaving of space-time, but are not accessible to us. Our ability to access these other dimensions is limited. Now think about what being able to access another dimension of reality would would do for someone. For instance, in mathematics at the universities, they oftentimes study fifth-dimensional mathematics. It's very complicated as you go up, but at least adding one more dimension of reality, we can at least theorize it and show the mathematical equations that would explain it. And one of the exercises they have students do is to mathematically use formulas using fifth-dimensional mathematics to show how to turn a basketball completely inside out without breaking any surface. And this is done routinely, shown we can't do it physically in reality because we're limited to only four dimensions of space. But if we had a fifth dimension available to us, it would not only be possible to turn a basketball inside out without breaking any surface of it, it'd be ridiculously easy to do it. Well, consider if there were a couple additional uh, dimensions of space and a couple of, of additional dimensions of time available to us. Apparently, the creator who dwells outside of this space and time is not limited to these four dimensions. Sure. But uh, suppose uh, you're sitting across this desk from me, and if I was just a one-dimensional person, I was trying to get to you with only one dimension, I cannot get to you. This desk is in the way, and it's iter- literally impossible for me to get to you. But if I have two dimensions of reality, if I can go length and width, I can just turn sideways, walk around the desk, and come over to where you are, and what was impossible becomes ridiculously easy. Well, what about if I was inside a, a completely enclosed room, doors and windows barred and locked, and suddenly a being appeared in the room? 
as Jesus did in the upper room with mm. the disciples. Now, that's impossible. Well, if Jesus had the ability to rotate his first dimension into the fifth dimension, his dimension of length, and to rotate his dimension of width, his second dimension, into the sixth dimension, and to rotate his third dimension of height into the seventh dimension, the walls would absolutely have no bearing on his ability to move in and out of there. So what we're saying is we're not trying to explain away the miracles and say they weren't miracles, okay? We're just saying to you that many of the things that are in Scripture that are spiritually related point to a spiritual reality that we're now pointing to with our mathematics, that there is a reality out there beyond the reality that that we have available to us. The foundational alpha and omega. I mean, that's outside of time. That's before the beginning and after the end, Mm -hmm. as we know it. You see, what it all comes down to is the space-time theorems of general relativity say that uh, currently the universe having mass and being governed by relativity could not have created itself, could not have brought itself into being. So if you were to formulate it in a scientific statement, the uh, causal force for the universe's existence cannot dwell within the space-time manifold of the universe, meaning whatever brought the universe into being must dwell outside the universe. And it must have happened a limited, finite time ago out of essentially nothing. Now, you could restate that by quoting Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. By faith, we understand that the universe was prepared by the word of God, so that what was made was not made out of things which we are able Mm. to measure. You couldn't hardly have a more apt depiction of the current statement of general relativity than Genesis chapter 1, 1 and Hebrews 11 chapter uh, verse 1. But there are other things. Uh, relativity says some things about the nature of electrons. Electrons uh, spin around nucleuses of atoms in pairs. They're paired together. And they line themselves up and they link to each other in terms of their spin, how they spin, and various other factors about them. And we know from nature and studying them that if we change the spin of one electron, it automatically, instantaneously, with no visible lag of time, changes the spin of the paired electron that pairs with it. So we've been able to ingeniously in laboratories get these two paired electrons that are spinning around the electron to diverge from each other off different paths and separate from each other. And no matter how far apart they get from each other, when we change the spin of the one, the other one instantaneously changes. Mm. Information is somehow being conveyed through the space-time, possibly through one of these lower dimensions that we have no access to, and it's changing immediately. This is called the principle of non-locality. And what it says is there is no such thing as locality in the universe. We like to say, oh, that galaxy way over there on the other side of the universe, that's in that local part of the universe. Mm -hmm. That doesn't have anything to do with us here because we're in this locality. But if it's true that information can flow instantaneously between separated particles through the quantum of subspace, then it means that whether you're on one side of the universe or here, you can be instantaneously connected. So when the scripture says there is a friend who is closer to you than a brother, that although you do not see Jesus Christ, and physically he may seem far away from you, he is actually closer to you and connected to you at all times, more close than your brother is. And that in the spiritual realm is exactly what scripture is talking about. There are 
uh, fuzzier and fuzzier and weirder and weirder mm-hmm. things at the quantum level. The fact that everything fuzzes out the smaller we get as we look down at atoms and then there's these gaps between atoms and spaces between the electrons and we realize that what we consider to be solid matter is made up of a lot of moving electrons and spinning space in between them. And as we go smaller and smaller... Even the electrons and protons break down into subparticles and quarks and mesons. And as we go even smaller with them, the equations suggest that they fuzz out into vibrational loops of energy. They somehow switch from being physical to being vibrational loops of energy at certain frequencies that determine what makes up electrons and all. Which means everything we see and believe to be solid and strong and firm is made up of non-physical stuff. Mm. Uh, Someone has suggested, well, then the universe is kind of like a hologram, uh, projected. The the reality we think is real is a projection of an underlying reality. Well, again, that's kind of mind-boggling, and who cares about all of that, except that That's exactly what Jesus said. He said to look beyond this present universe, to see with the eye of faith that which is truly real, that God, what God has said since he dwells outside of space and time is more valid, more real than even what we might sense with our own senses. Mm. Because our senses are built to make us operate normally at this level of reality and things seem physical. And yes, if you step off the roof, you will fall and you will get hurt. But... You go down, break it down small enough, there is, a, there is a non-physical reality out there. We call it the spiritual realm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, and again, tying everything back in to God's Word. I mean, that's key, right? I mean, that's the, that is the cornerstone for which all of existence is built, and Christ is that cornerstone. Mm-hmm. We as Christians today say that the Bible tells us essentially the same thing the science is telling us, that the universe and all the matter, energy, space, and time that makes it up sprang into being a limited, finite time ago out of something that cannot be measured by something that cannot be measured, and that today it's continuing to expand outward and that uh, it is on a unique course. It won't duplicate. It won't collapse and then re-expand. It is definitely on a one-way course. And all of the energy that was created in the initial event will eventually spread out and be unusable. Stars will grow dim and the universe will grow dark if given enough time. And all matter will be spread infinitely, spread out, and there'll be nothing left. Mm. So the end of the universe, it doesn't begin over. It doesn't reincarnate. It doesn't bounce. Uh, it's pretty dismal looking, frankly. It's very clear that the universe was meant to be here only temporarily. It, and that's, again, what Scripture tells us. There's a temporary function for this physical life that we're in, which is to prepare us for eternal life to come. And my pastor has written a song called, uh, This is All Temporary. And... Uh, and it really captures that. The yeah. things we go through, there are difficulties that come at us. There are things that, that make us wonder, why is this happening here? And, and it can, they can loom very, very large in our life. It can be an illness. It can be a financial setback. And at the time, it looms so large, it seems to just drown out everything else. How can this possibly be? But when we step back and we look at the eternity of the universe, it was never meant to be permanent here. And what we go through, he said, I won't leave you alone. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. It's not just that he's preparing a great place and it's fabulous and and heaven and it's built for us and that's great. 
but he's also saying, so that where I am, there you may be also. When my wife wants to talk about going on vacation, I usually say, I don't care we go, where we go, just as long as I get to be with you when we're there without interruption. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Great hope. And that's outside of time. That's what eternity actually is, is outside of time. Stan Reynolds, uh, I can't wait uh, for a whole nother month, but we're going to do it anyway. If somebody wants to, you know, uh, pick your brain or see some things between now and then, where do they go? Well, I put a few postings on Facebook.com slash Reynolds Resources. That's Reynolds, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S, Facebook.com slash Reynolds Resources. Dan, thanks for your time. All right, great. Blessings. Blessings.